that music is music to my ears. The music is by a gentleman named Gregory Page. Gregory Page is a singer-songwriter, lives in San Diego. He's of Irish descent, works a lot with Jason Mraz. Jason Mraz and Gregory were both singing that intro. And the reason that intro I picked to be the background to our beginning and our end of our show is because the meaning of the song, the meaning of the lyrics, really hit home with me when I first heard it. I first heard the song Green Lights and Blue Skies at a concert at Riverside, California. And after the show, I went out to the lobby and I got lucky. Greg came out to the lobby, didn't know him at the time. And I said to him that you could play that song, get rid of the therapists and just play that song. And if somebody who needed help would just listen to the words of that song, that's all they needed. Cause every day's a new day, count your blessings I say. Every day's a new day, every day we wake up we have a new experience, we have a new opportunity. Count your blessings each day. Be grateful. Get out of your own way so you can move. We do things that just mess ourselves up all the time. If we just allow ourselves to live and to feel, we'd be in so much better shape. Don't look behind and ask why. Yesterday is a canceled check. It's done. We can't do anything about that. Our ticket is for one ride. We're here one time. We only have one life. We gotta live it. Green lights and blue skies are on their way. It's a hopeful song. Tomorrow is going to be a great tomorrow. For my part, music is one of the great things that allows me to stay sober. And the name of our show is Sobriety Society. We're gonna bring the folks that are sober, the folks that have found a new way of life, people that were dependent on alcohol, people dependent on drugs, no longer living that way and living happy. We're gonna tell you about their stories. We're gonna tell you of how you go from point A to point B from not knowing how to do it to figuring it out. The steps in between take some time and people that use alcohol and drugs like myself, I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict, we're not very patient people. We want what we want when we want it. But patience and time is a part of the process. Over a period of time, people start feeling better. I started feeling better. And I'm hoping Sobriety Society will help people that you know or you feel better over a period of time. We're gonna get cracking now and go meet somebody who's enhanced my life and who's made my sobriety a much more enjoyable and better experience. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing really well, I'm excited. This is the first time I've had a guest in that chair and hopefully people that are somewhere can match how wonderful you are, are going to also be in that chair. The network of people that you know, I have a feeling that I'm going to be on the low end of your spectrum of people that will be on this podcast. Well, I don't know about that, but I can tell you the word network is really interesting because that's exactly what sobriety is like. It's connecting with people. It's a network of people who all are working together, helping each other, trying to make it so that because of our connection, every day is a little bit easier, every day is a little bit better. 
And so what we're going to try to do today is we'll try to go back a little bit and talk about what things were like kind of at the beginning. I'm Andrew. I identify as an alcoholic um, and a drug addict in recovery. Uh, my sober date is November 10th, 2016. So I get to celebrate six years sober this weekend, which is truly incredible. I was adopted at birth. So the reason I share that is because it has a lot to do with how I ended up where I am and the kind of emotional insecurities that I've dealt with my entire life. I was adopted into a Jewish household and we lived in the Bronx for the first five years of my life. And I remember being in the car with my family and me recognizing that I don't feel like I am a part of this family at a very young age. So I think at like five years old, that's, that was truly how I felt. I remember being in the minivan and looking at my brother and my parents and being like, I don't belong here. Was there an event that occurred that created that feeling or it was just a realization? I think it was a natural realization. It was one of these things that I think I'm, I'm an empath by nature. It's an empath? Empath, so I, I pick up on, on empathic tendencies of, of other people. I'm a sponge of other people's emotion. I don't know what drove that uncomfortability, but at a young age, I was able to recognize that I didn't really feel comfortable in my nuclear household. But from then, I kind of got in trouble. I was the class clown. I was constantly trying to get out of myself and deflect and not, not a bully, but, but definitely picking on teachers, acting out, getting kicked out of class. And finally, I was in like middle school and they're like, we've had enough of Andrews, a terror in class. Let's get him with a therapist. And that's when I was diagnosed with ADHD. A lot of people during the time that I was growing up kind of dealt with the same kind of stuff where if you were a bad kid, you were sent to the office and, and likely you were put on medication. So I was given that first Ritalin and very quickly, I was probably 13 or 14 at the time, I went from taking these little pills to putting these pills up my nose. You know, and it made me, it gave me this euphoric feeling inside. It was speed, essentially. And I, I quickly learned that I had the ability and the quick tongue, the gift of gab, if you will, to manipulate my doctor. So I went from these little Ritalin to Adderall, and then quickly to, to Xanax. I went to my doctor and I was like, hey, I'm... What age? 14. 14? <laughs> yeah. Impressive. <laughs> Some would say that, you know? And then I found like booze, you know, and I was like, oh my God, I've arrived. At 14. Bar mitzvah season, so 13, okay. you know? <laughs> I think my first drink was like during, underneath the table at a bar mitzvah, you know, making out with a girl and sipping on wine. And it wasn't, that was not a profound experience. The making out or the wine? Oh, the wine. The making out was, you know. All of these things put together, I'm like, oh my God, drinking and these Adderall and Xanax, all this stuff, and they're powerful drugs. Got me to a place of like, oh my God, like this is, this is it. This is the good stuff. And I was playing football like my whole life and I got my first fake ID and I'm like the life of the party and I'm learning, oh my God, like here we are, Andrew Schwartz, Schwartzy, let's go get the, the kegs and the beers and the, and my first blackout right the cops were involved so we were throwing like a party in the woods and and the cops came and they were like who supplied all this booze and like i was the guy with the fake id you know um and i kind of rode that and i was always getting in trouble and kind of the 
for lack of a better term, the party animal of the crew. And that identity suited me really, really well. I enjoyed that. I really did. Somehow made it to college, you know, and I, I was at that point selling drugs and doing drugs and supplying and, and being that almost like larger than life party animal and thriving in that kind of deal. And smoking a ton of weed, I transferred out to University of Denver and that's when I found my first true love, which was Oxycontin. So now I had like the Adderall, the Xanax, the pot, the booze, oxys. I was taking all sorts of hallucinogens when I could get my hands on them. I'm what they call a garbage head. So anything that I could take to get out of myself is, I want more of it. In 20, 2009, I got my first DWI in Pleasantville, New York. I got to fly back to Colorado with zero consequences really. And my drinking just kind of escalated and in 2012, I moved back to New York from Denver and joined a firm on Wall Street and to be 22 working in finance and running around and living in the city. And I, I thought that was the way it was supposed to be. Everybody does this. Everybody stays out to two in the morning and, you know, takes drugs to keep their stability, right? I was like the chemist to my own life. And you were living home at the time? I was living home, I was bouncing back and forth between the city, friends' couches, Bushwick, Lower East Side. It was pretty cool, I enjoyed it. And then in 2012, actually Thanksgiving Eve of 2012, I went out hard drinking, blacked out, behind the wheel of my dad's car and totaled it. And the telephone pole fell on the car, the telephone pole I hit. So there were live wires laid across the top of the car and it was like a few days after Hurricane Sandy. So the woman whose power I took out on Thanksgiving came out screaming at me. Oh my God, I can't cook my turkey for my family. I'm like, look lady, I got bigger problems than this right now. And I called the cops on myself and I had to get out of the sunroof of the car. And I was lucky, you know, I was really, really lucky to be alive. And my attorney said, hey, Andrew, you should probably go to AA. And I went to my first AA meeting at the Mustard Seed on 42nd Street. And I was like, there's no way these people are staying sober. There's no way they're like laughing and having fun in sobriety. No way. And I took my little sheet that the judge had to see for signatures, right? And I started signing it myself. I was like, there, no one's ever gonna know. And like that again was like no consequences to my actions and I kept doing my thing. I was doing a ton of Oxycontin at the time. Um, while you were going to AA meetings? While I was going to AA meetings, while I was drinking and drugging like a maniac, and no consequences for my second DWI. And this went on, you know, my, my opiate use escalated. I started sniffing heroin. My justification was that as long as I'm not shooting heroin, I'm not a junkie, right? You know, I'm just, uh, I'm just uh, having fun here. And in 2015, I had friends dropping dead of overdoses. It was like the first wave of this epidemic of, of opiate addiction. And one of my close friends died, Johnny O died in 2016. And he was like someone who I was very kind of close with. We grew up kind of doing the same things and partying in similar situations. And when he passed away, it like kind of hit home that like I was gonna be next and I was kind of on that on that road. 
and I hit this very emotional bottom in New Orleans. I ran out of drugs and I was running around like a maniac down there, blacked out, calling my family. I don't know what I said or what I did. I missed two flights leaving New Orleans, which I'm sure is not uncommon. <laughs> but I landed in Newark and my brother met me at the airport because I left my keys down in New Orleans with my shoes, my wallet, my dignity. <laughs> Um, and I saw my brother and I embraced him and I just started crying. And I kind of knew that, that it was up. I would say that was an emotional bottom. I had broken up with the girl I was dating at the time because I wanted to go rip and run and do my own thing. That's how I ended up in New Orleans alone. And I went into the office, I work in a family business, I went into the office the following day in like my nicest suit, trying to play it off like it's just another bender. We've been here before. And my brother and my dad said, hey, let's go get breakfast. I said, okay, like, let's do it. And they're like, Andrew, we really think you should go get help. And I literally looked at them and said, what took you so long? And he said that he just hoped I would grow out of it. So I checked myself into rehab. I went to Karen Treatment Center out in, in Wernersville, PA. And I was the worst I'm sure not the worst patient they've ever seen, but I was pretty bad. I checked in on Wednesday. By Friday, I was trying to leave. I called my drug dealer on Saturday morning. I said, yo, Goldberg, come get me out of rehab. Goldberg was like, look, Schwartzy, stay in treatment. I think you need it. And when your drug dealer says you should stay in rehab, <laughs> you should probably stay in rehab. Yeah. Sunday morning, there's chapel there. And this guy, Damien, looked at me and he goes, look, Andrew, like, when else are you gonna have 30 days for the rest of your life? When are you gonna have 30 days to work on yourself in order to give you a life beyond your wildest dreams? And I looked at myself in the mirror and I hated the way I looked. I was physically probably close to 300 pounds. I knew that I had no coping skills to deal with life and that it was described to me there that like the reason I was bouncing off the walls every morning is because I was going through, you know, detox. And the drugs that I had been putting in my body have this symptom of post-acute withdrawal that I had been going through. And every morning I would be like hell-bent on getting out of rehab and I didn't identify as an alcoholic or drug addict and it would take a few hours for me to breathe and come to grips of who I am and who I was and what I was trying to do. And I took suggestions, man, and, and one day at a time built, built a life that truly is beyond my wildest dreams today. So you come out of rehab after 30 days. Yes. And what's that look like? Um, I was shaking like a leaf, not from like physical withdrawal symptoms, but from not having the ability to deal with anxiety and dealing with people and asking for help. And I remember going to my first AA meeting in Yorktown Heights and I walked in and like my buddy was sitting there, one of my friends from high school was sitting there. He's like, Schwartz, what are you doing here? And I was like, dear, I like trying to get sober, man. I just got out of rehab yesterday. And this is a God moment in retrospect. I did not have a God of my understanding then. I did not have a relationship with my higher power then. But looking back at it, it was God. Because I think without my buddy Danny sitting there, I don't think I would have been introduced or comfortable in AA the way I was. And he introduced me to Mike the Plumber. And Mike the Plumber said, hey, every morning you gotta call me at 6.45. Everybody needs a plumber. 
everybody needs a farm. <laughs> he introduced me to 10 other guys who all called me and checked in on me in my first year of sobriety. And like two months in into calling Mike the plumber every morning, I was like, dude, what is this about? Why do I have to call you every morning? We have the same conversation every day. And he was like, hey, Andrew, like if you call me on the good days, chances are you'll call me on the bad days before you pick up a drink or drug. And that was like brotherly love to me. I was like, damn, this guy's not doing this for anything but my, my well-being, right? The opposite of addiction is connection. And I don't think I ever had a connection before I got sober with, with people. You know, with my family, with my friends, with the men in my life that I call my network, that I depend on. And they, they say that we'll love you before you love yourself in AA. And I think that's also super profound and so true. It took me a few years to really love myself. Well, it, it's inspiring to hear where you started and what you went through uh, getting reset, so to speak. I'm, I, I know a little bit because you and I have a relationship and I adore you and love you very much. Um, how does it feel waking up in the morning, not picking up, not using, and what's going on in your life? I've been sober six years and I think sobriety evolves like everything in life, right? And, and you know, the one thing that we could depend on in life is change. I got sober at 28. So I thought my life was over. How am I gonna fill my time? The only thing I knew was going to parties and smoking weed all the time and popping pills and sniffing things. And so in the beginning, like I had to fill my time with simple things, right? With AA meetings, like a ton of AA meetings. With going to the gym and my first goal was to be able to do 10 miles on a stationary bicycle at the gym. and when all else failed and I had nothing to do and I was so uncomfortable in my own skin, I would go get a massage. These simple things carried me in the beginning of my program. And then I started spending time with guys in my network, started playing more golf, and I'm a terrible golfer, you know that. I know that. <laughs> um, every day after work, we'd be going out and just swinging sticks just to have fun and fill our times. And slowly but surely, this AA brings you back to life and you get comfortable talking to your old friends. As you get better, you get the ability to help people. So you're not the, the newcomer in AA, right? And you could take someone else to the diner with you or out to coffee and then you eventually start to sponsor guys. My journey in sobriety kind of coincided with this lifestyle journey of being a better version of myself. You know, when I was first getting sober, I like, I was fat, I was overweight, I, I didn't like who I was, and, and so I started making these small goals, right? So my 10 miles on the bicycle went to, I'm gonna run a mile on the elliptical. And then, you know, the girls dating at the time said, hey, let's run a 5K in Riverside Park in March called the Frozen Penguin, it was freezing. And then I said, okay, let's do it. And, and I ran like a 35 minute 5K. The photos of that are like amazing because it was just the beginning. You know, since then, I've built this life where I have a wonderful niece and nephew, a great relationship with my brother. My relationship with my parents ebbs and flows. That's one of the, the gifts of sobriety is that I learned like boundaries, right? And I learned that in order for me to maintain this life that I have, 
I need to keep my peace. But outside of that, I have a wonderful girlfriend who you've met, Molly. That whole world brings me so much joy. And today I get to help people and spend time with newcomers in Alcoholics Anonymous and play golf. And although my golf game hasn't gotten much better, it's I have way more fun on the course because I love myself and I'm comfortable in my own skin. Sobriety for me is 100% abstinence from any mood-altering substance. So that's no drinking, no drugs at all, which is the way I like it. Without sobriety, I would have none of this. I would actually be dead. So my biological mom found me on Facebook before I turned 21. So before I got sober, I had a relationship with her. And around the same time, she opened up a Facebook chat with my biological father. And my biological dad ghosted me before ghosting was like a thing, right? So he said, Andrew, I'll be in New York in August. Let's get together. And then the guy disappeared. A few years into sobriety, I had the confidence to look this man up and, and see him and forgive him for this kind of resentment that I was carrying around for 10 years. Without sobriety, I don't think I would have had the ability to do something like that. And that is such an important piece of what we do as sober men in this world, which is forgiving not only ourselves, but forgiving people that have done distasteful things to us in the past. And it's truly a gift that I didn't know I deserved or that I could have. I think all the things that you described that you've gone through are going to make you a, an amazing dad. I can't wait to see <laughs> what that looks like. One day at a time, right? One day at a time. Stay yeah. where you're feeling. Definitely. Andrew, you're the best. Thank I love you, so buddy. Thank you. Give me a hug. talking about what I would tell my 25-year-old self, and I, my answer was not worrying about the things that won't happen. It occurs to me that somebody much smarter than me, and there are a lot of people that fit within that category, once told me a good exercise to try to change the ways of being able to make worry not a part of your day-to-day -day experience is to write down today what you're worried about and do that for 30 days in the same book like a journal and in a month pick up the book take a look at the book and read it and I believe dollars to donuts what you'll find that's an expression you'll find that the things that you wrote down that you're worrying about none of it happens the exercise is intended to try to make it so that we stop that practice of worrying. Stopping the practice of worrying allows us to enjoy the day and enjoy the moment. For me, living sober has a lot to do with enjoying the moment, making it so there's no reason in the world that I'd want to change the way that I feel. One of the things I talk about all the time is a book that I've read by a guy named Donald Miller. The name of the book is Scary Close. A popular book. It was on the Times bestseller list years ago. And Donald Miller uh, talks about an article he read about an Australian nurse. He says, last year, I read an article about an Australian nurse named Bonnie Ware, who spent the bulk of her career in palliative care tending patients with 12 or fewer weeks to live. Not surprisingly, most of her patients had joys and regrets. However, they were able to find a higher level of clarity 
about what mattered most. Remarkably, the most common regret of the dying was that they wished they had the courage to live a life true to themselves and not the life others expected of them. As the author read about Bronnie's patience, it says, I wondered how many opinions I've wanted to share but held back for fear of criticism. What love I've wanted to express but stayed silent for fear of rejection. Or poems or stories I've never released because I didn't think they'd be good enough for publication. He says, it's true I've been hurt a few times after revealing myself. There have been people who lie in wait for the vulnerable and pounce as a way to feel powerful. But God forgive them. I'm willing to take the occasional blow to find people I connect with. As long as you're willing to turn the other cheek with the mean ones, vulnerability can get you a wealth of friends. And this is the piece that really hit home with me. Can you imagine coming to the end of your life, being surrounded by people who loved you only to realize they never really knew who you are, or having poems you've never shared, or injustices you said nothing about. Can you imagine realizing then that it was too late? So what's the lesson? The lesson is to be yourself. Find out who you are, who you want to be. That's who you need to be, being yourself. And for me, being happy in sobriety, not just not using, not just not drinking, being happy not using, being happy not drinking is really the magic. That's the key. And being yourself is the message I'd like to leave you with today. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.